Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to do this stuff, to tell us all this? Who do you think you are? You're not trained. You've got no authority here. You're not qualified. Who are you to tell us, to tell them, to teach? Who do you think you are? That's the question that lies at the very heart of the incident from Jesus' life that we are going to look at today. It's really one incident that plays out over two Sabbaths. One happens in a field, one happens in a synagogue. And really, there are just three parties involved. Number one, there's Jesus. Number two, there's the Pharisees, teachers of the law. Let's call them the religious leaders. And then thirdly, a man with a shriveled hand. But as you listen to the action, to what is actually going on, remember that the question that is actually being asked of Jesus is, and it's not, it's a question, but it's more done in a kind of style of a statement as I tried to do just a minute ago. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? That's the question that Jesus is being asked. And listen for how firstly Jesus answers it, and then he turns it around. And in effect, he asks both groups, the man with the shriveled hand and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who do you think I am? There's more going on in this passage than maybe you would first think. So let's read it. We're going to look at it from Luke 6, verse 1 to 11. It will hopefully come up behind me. Luke 6, 1 to 11 says this. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. I'll just pause there for a moment. Jesus does know what we're thinking all the time about everything, by the way. I'll just throw that one out for free. Don't let it freak you out, but it's true. And said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand and to hear what it is that you want to say to us and teach us. Thank you that you know what we're thinking. <laughs> Thank you know everything, Lord. So we don't come at this with our knowledge, our cleverness. We come at this asking you to teach us and to speak to us. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 
Okay, in order to understand what's going on here in this passage, we have to understand something of the relationships between three things. Number one, the Ten Commandments which God gave. Number two, the religious rules and traditions, let's call them, which have kind of been added to explain, define the Ten Commandments. And then thirdly, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious rulers. You've got to understand something about those three and the relationship between them. So let's start off with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were basically given by God as an expression of what he was like and how he wanted his people to relate to him and to relate to other people and actually to relate in some ways to his creation. The Ten Commandments are good and they've always were to be worked out in everyday life in an ongoing relationship with God because they don't cover and can't cover every area of church, uh, of, of life, but they do give principles, if you like, for living under God, which is why they start with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. That's where they start. And I suppose because they were always intended to show us something of what God was like and to keep drawing us back into relationship with him, to keep us asking him, so God, what about this? What about that? What about this? It wasn't just the letter of the law that was important, though it was. It was also the spirit of the law. What was God trying to say? What was God trying to express? What was God revealing about himself? So it was not just the letter of the law, but it was the spirit of the law that was important. And so that's the Ten Commandments. They're good. They're helpful. They're instructive. They reflect something of God and what he commands. But, you know, because they're like that, because they're designed to draw us into relationship with God and we're supposed to work out our meaning and our lives in relationship with him, you know what people wanted? They wanted a shortcut. They wanted definition. It was often about what could we get away with and not break them. In reality, people just wanted a shortcut. They go, well, tell me what I need to do then. A bit lazy, really. And... And that's what they wanted. What could I do without technically breaking one of the commandments? And, you know, when you get people that want definition, whether it's out of good motive or not such good motive, there are always going to be groups of people like the religious leaders and Pharisees of the day who, again, sometimes for good motive and sometimes for not good motive, are more than happy to define what people could and couldn't do from the Ten Commandments. And they were mostly happy to do that because it gave them power and authority and status. Basically, they got to divine and tell everybody else what they could and couldn't do in their everyday lives under the name of God. And so this whole heap of religious rules and traditions had been created. And these were defined and strictly enforced by the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the teachers of the law. And effectively, they were a means of ruling over people, but in the name of God. Because if you broke one of their rules, one of their traditions, it was effectively like, or they would say it was effectively like, breaking one of God's Ten Commandments, and you could be treated accordingly. Did you get that? Ten Commandments? Rules, regulations, break one of these, you've broken one of those. 
Let me just read for you the Ten Commandments, because actually the Ten Commandments are not very long, not very complicated, and are pretty good. I'll read them to you. It won't take long, probably about a minute. Ready? Exodus 20. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or the water below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the father to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my command. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Praise God, hallelujah. Neither you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your maidservant, your manservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, absolutely, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his maidservant, his manservant, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. That's the Ten Commandments. It's done. It's done. That's what God said. But you see, what had been added to it was this whole load of rules and regulations. Let me give you an example of this. That fourth commandment about having a day's Sabbath, right? A day's rest, rest from your labor. Modeled by God at creation. It's good for you. It's good for you. It's good for the land. It's an opportunity to draw near to God, to give thanks, to, 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 to remind yourself that all you have is given to you by God. It's a great commandment. Have a day off. Have a day's rest. Stop working. It's a great commandment. It was supposed to be a means of blessing, to do us good, to stop us working ourselves financially to the bone out of either fear or greed. But there were these whole loads of added rules and regulations about, for example, what constituted work. So, for example, in Jesus' day, you couldn't take a journey on the Sabbath because that had been deemed work. The question was, though, is how far could I walk before it becomes a journey? And so the rule was that you could take 1,999 paces and it wasn't a journey. That was allowed. But anything over that was a journey and was not allowed. If you took one more step, the 2,000th step, you'd broken the rule and regulation, you'd broken the commandment. And there were many ludicrous rules and regulations that governed what people could and couldn't do. But the key thing I want you to know is that these rules were made and they were enforced by the religious leaders, teachers of the law, Pharisees of the day. And so any attack on them, any deviation from those rules and regulations was like an attack on their authority to rule over the people, to tell people what to do in the name of God. However, the problem for the religious leaders was that now they come up against one who knows the author of the Ten Commandments, who knows him personally, who knows what God intended for them to be and how they should be used. And he, Jesus sees right through their man-made rules and regulations and he confronts them. And that's what's going on in these incidents. So let's just look at them again. Go back to the story that I read. Incident one, 
we're in this grain field. And Jesus' disciples pick up a handful of grain, rub their hands together to get the good bit out, and then eat it. And that could have been deemed unlawful on three counts. Reaping, threshing, and preparing food. None of which you could do on the Sabbath according to their rules and regulations. Listen to what the Pharisees are accusing them of. Verse 2, some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? It's unlawful. You're breaking the law. You're breaking God's Ten Commandments. And Jesus' answer is fascinating because he points them back to a time when King David, who was God's anointed king at the time, in desperation and hunger, on the run from Saul, entered the house of God and ate the sacred bread and gave some to his companions. See, the sacred bread was supposed to only be by the priest because it represented the very presence of God. But hey, here's King David, the anointed one, and he's had a battle, and he's hungry, and he goes in and he eats it. That's what Jesus points them back to. In other words, because David was who David was, he had the authority, as it were, to define what could and couldn't be done with that bread, even though it went against the rules, the traditions, and, uh, and in a sense, what they said should have been done. And then Jesus asserts his authority as one greater than David. He says, I'm, I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus' answer in verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, the, Lord, the son of man. That's Jesus referring to himself. He's saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. In essence, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees concerning the rules and regulations that they've created and made around the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And therefore, guess what? I will decide what is to be permitted and allowed on it. Remember the question they were asking. Who do you think you are? What authority do you have? Jesus points to his identity as then giving him the authority to say how things are to be and how things are not to be. He doesn't really care about all their rules and regulations. The second incident in the synagogue, where Jesus heals this man with a shriveled hand, which you would have thought, I mean, if someone came in here today with a shriveled hand and walked out without a shriveled hand, you would have thought that's good news. Generally, pretty inoffensive. Guess what? I went to church the other day. God, what come And he walked out. I mean, you would have thought everyone would have said, even if people didn't believe it, they would have said, wow, that's good. Good for him. But it just shows you how ludicrous things have become. You see, the rules and regulations, read the Sabbath, in Jesus' day meant you could treat an injury, but only to stop it getting worse. Any attempts to do anything to actually make it better, to cure it, if you like, was regarded as work and was unlawful. So if someone was ill, you could, you could stop the bleeding, but you couldn't do anything to make it better. You had to wait till Monday. And because a withered, withered hand, a shriveled hand, was not life-threatening, then it couldn't be treated or cured on a Sabbath. And so Jesus gets this man to stand up. And really the question that he asks or says exposes the, the murderous, terrible thoughts that's going on in the hearts and the minds of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. 
Because Jesus says to them, he gets the man to stand there, but he speaks to them. He says, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? See, for Jesus, here's a man in genuine need. And if good can be done for him, then good needs to be done. The question is not whether it's permissible or lawful according to their rules and regulations on the Sabbath, but is it right? Is it good as God defines good, to love good and to love God and to love others? And if it is, then that's what you need to do. In fact, not doing the good that you're able to do and that God would have you to do is evil in and of itself. So for Jesus, this is a matter of justice. It's about doing what's right before God when the face with the legitimate needs of this man and Jesus is able to do something about it, of course it's right to do good. If you like, the God-given moral imperative supersedes any rules or regulations that they or anybody else may have created. And so Jesus acts. He looks around at them all. He looks around at them all. Man, the man still in the middle. He looks around at them all. But he says to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. Now, actually, technically, Jesus could not have kind of been done for that by the Pharisees and religious leaders because you can't really consider saying to someone, stretch out your hand as work. I mean, actually, he didn't. He simply told the man to do something. But I don't think that mattered because you know what? Truth was, there simply was not a chapter in their rules and regulation book covering what happens when the Son of God turns up and starts doing miracles. It's just, they just don't, don't know what to do. And the incident ends with a man being healed, which you should have been, everyone, oh, praise God. Man's got healed. But the Pharisees are enraged, furious. It literally means swept up in irrational anger against Jesus. Okay, let's just have a little look. What can we learn from, from this incident? What can we learn from the two groups? I just want to look at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and I want to look at this man with the shriveled hand, see what we can learn. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, overall, I've got to say, they don't come out of it well. Their understanding, their actions, they're just deeply flawed. They claim to know God, and yet Jesus exposes the painful truth. They don't know God at all. They are miles away from God. And because they don't know God, what they've done is to effectively, which is what people do if they don't know God, they've written their own rules and regulations, really. They've written their own rules and regulations and traditions. And now they teach them and enforce them as though they were the very words of God. Are you with me? That's what they're doing. They, they had the Ten Commandments, but from that they've written... Now they say, yeah, but that's... But they're the, no, 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 they're not. They never were. They're the ones who are actually on the road to doing an evil, terrible thing in taking a life. When Jesus says, I ask you, which is it lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or evil, to save life or destroy it, he's actually fronting them up to their own sin. 
because they are plotting and will continue to plot if you know the rest of the story. They are actually there planning to break another one of God's actual commandment, do not murder, by planning and plotting to murder the Son of God. It's not good, is it? I mean, to murder anyone's not good, but to murder the Son of God. As the Son of God stands there and says, what's it better to do, evil or good? But they don't know God. So they don't recognize his son. They don't understand who Jesus is. They don't accept his authority, the the authority that he has, which is a far greater authority than theirs. And so rather than bowing the knee and submitting to Jesus, as Tim encouraged us to do earlier during the worship, what do they do in that moment? Do they bow the knee, submit to Jesus? There's one here who's got greater authority than us. No, they don't. What they do is they harden their hearts and they plan to murder him. The question they've really been asking, Jesus, who do you think you are? And the answer from Jesus, explained both in words and confirmed by the miracles, is I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's greater than David. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Son of God. That's who I am. And now it's like Jesus is saying, I'm going to ask you a question. Now you know who I am. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) In that, is it better to do evil or good? Jesus is really confronting them. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to do evil? Are you going to do good? I think Jesus is giving them an opportunity to repent, to change their thinking, to accept him to accept his authority, to let go of the rules and regulations and traditions that they're building their lives around and saying that it's come from God. It hasn't come from God at all. It's come from them. But they don't. And so they're enraged. And they're full of fury and hatred towards Jesus. And murder will follow. What lessons can we learn from the Pharisees, the teachers of the law? It's sobering what we learn from them. I think a few things. Number one, don't fixate on trivial, mundane things. They may appear really important. I'm sure some of those rules and regulations maybe appeared really important to them, but it really wasn't that important in the big scheme of things. But they got so fixated on it, the trivial, the mundane. And, you know, sometimes I get so fixated on on what really is the trivial and the mundane sometimes in my life that I just miss so many of the bigger things that are out there. You know, I can be sat there on a Tuesday morning and I'm kind of fixed in my own little, you know, things going in, things that are going on in Dale Barlow's life, which clearly are really massively important, but they're not really. And then I sit with someone and I hear the story of how their 13-year-old daughter is having terrible mental health issues. And I think, ooh, gosh, what I was whinging to God about for half an hour this morning. Nothing really. And then on Thursday, I hear a voice message from a guy who's in Ukraine. And he's asking, can you pray for us? Because we're trying to get help in for refugees while we're in the middle of a bomb, a bombing situation. I think, oh, maybe, you know, my big concern on Tuesday morning wasn't such a big concern. Are you with me? Let's not just be stuck, you know, just, just on the trivial. No, no, come on. I think also, second one, a bit of a warning, really. Make sure that the commands, the rules, the regulations, I mean, I think we've all got stuff, how we live, things that we do, 
if you like, we're going to do this, we're not going to do that. Let's make sure that they actually come from God and reflect his heart and not of our own making. I mean, it's quite easy to kind of make up your own set of rules and regulations, isn't it? Well, that's God's Ten Commandments, and I then live like this, and they're kind of out of that. Well, are they kind of out of that? <laughs> the Pharisees and the li- theirs weren't. So I do think it's worth at times just stopping. God, does my heart reflect your heart? I had to say sorry to God this week because I realized that my reaction to something was completely my reaction, not how God would have reacted at all. My heart did not line up with God's heart. I had to say to him, God, I'm sorry about that. I think we've got to do that regularly. Another one is ensure the one who has the final place of authority in our lives is Jesus. Only Jesus and always Jesus. Right here, the nub of the issue for these Pharisees is, "Mm, we're not going to give our authority to you. We like sitting on the, on the throne of our lives. In fact, we like sitting on the throne of our lives and telling everybody else what they should be doing as well. There's no way, Jesus, that I'm going to put myself off the throne and put you on the throne. Actually, the very thing that they needed to do. So we can learn some things from the Pharisees. But you know, the other person we can really learn from in this passage, and for me, the hero of the passage in some ways, apart from Jesus, Jesus always must be the hero, but we can have a kind of second hero, if you like is this man with the shriveled hands. Because in this incident, there are some bits when you first read it, I thought that's a bit shocking, I thought that's a bit confusing, there's a few warnings there. But there is a lesson we can learn from this man. See, I think that this, in my mind, this is like a boxing scenario. It's been like a boxing match. I used to watch boxing when I was a kid, it was on telly more. And, you know, in the boxing, it would be like, in the blue corner, weighing in at 375 pounds, it's Bosher Graham, you know, and in the red corner and whatever it would be. Well, I actually think it's a bit like this, this, what we've been reading. In the blue corner, there's Jesus gathering large crowds, great teaching, performing miracles, claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Ding, 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 wow. And in the red corner, there's the Pharisees, the religious leaders. There they are with their influence and their teaching and their rules, the ear of the Romans. Ding, 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 ding. It's like a boxing match, as it were, a confrontation between the two. And this man with a shriveled hand, I think he's just gone to the synagogue to go to the synagogue. You know what I mean? He's just like, he's found himself at the back of the boxing match. Like the rest of the people. And then suddenly, he's called center stage. <laughs> uh, uh, you, come and stand here. You can imagine it, can't you? Just picture it. Suddenly, he's center stage. Suddenly, he's actually right in the middle of an argument between two very powerful things. I don't think it's a very comfortable place for him. Because he knows, as everyone knows, that the Pharisees are against Jesus. And the stakes are high here. Because if you side with Jesus against the Pharisees, you are taking on the entire religious establishment. So when Jesus looks at them and says to the man, stretch out your hand, I think it's a massive thing for this guy. It's a massive thing. Humanly speaking, the sensible thing to do is not to stretch out your hand. Because if you do, if it gets healed, you've just made an enemy of the most powerful people in your world, as it were. And even if you put it out and it doesn't, they're probably going to say, well, why did you listen to him? Are you with me? We're We're the ones who tell you what to do. We're the rulers of these pharaohs. What are you doing? He's going to upset them, whatever he does. In fact, the only reason to stretch out your hand 
if you're that man in that moment, is if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's more powerful than them, and you're going to get healed. If you don't believe all those things, you are not stretching out your hand. In other words, in answer to the question that Jesus has kind of been being asked by the Pharisees, the teacher of the law, who do you think I am? And him answering, Jesus, the son of God. And Jesus now turning the question around and asking everyone there, who do you say I am? This man with his shriveled hand has apparently considered the question he's worked out in the moment. This man is the Messiah. This man is the son of God. This is Jesus. He, he can... And he seems willing to be able to heal my arm if I stretch it out. And so I think in that moment, in that cauldron of hostility, with the eyes of the Pharisees burning into his neck, this man displays the most precious commodity known to man. Faith. Most precious commodity. Worth more than gold and silver and rubies and emeralds and anything else. Faith. Faith that Jesus is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. I picture that moment that the man stretched out his shriveled hand, the whole of heaven jumped up and went crazy. I don't know whether it did or not, but that's what I picture. Because it's faith. Right there, faith. Displayed as clearly and as powerfully and in the most difficult circumstances, as you will ever see, faith, the simple process of listening to Jesus, believing what he says, and then doing it. Sometimes I do wonder if I make life more complicated in my head than it really needs to be, because I'm trying to avoid the simplicity, which should be, Jesus, what are you saying? What do you want me to do? Now do it. But maybe that's just me. And just to say, the fact this man got healed... His arm, you know, his heel. It's miraculous, life-changing for him. But, you know, one day his arm stopped working again. His whole body stopped working again. But the thing is, there's an even greater miracle going on here than a physical healing. And that's the miracle of this man understanding who Jesus really is. And in that moment, choosing to put his faith in him. Most important thing I believe we can learn from this passage, that Jesus is who he says he is, and that our response to him should be one of faith, trusting him and doing what he says. <clears throat> I want to end by reading to you from 1 Peter 1 verse 3. One Peter 1 3. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you rejoice greatly, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, 
which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, salvation of your soul. Amen. I'm going to hand over to Tim. Thanks, Tim.